as I said before, I'm committed to building trust before I am to asking for anyone's money. And so if you follow this campaign, if you like what we're trying to do, if we have cultivated your trust and you want to see a people-powered candidate who does not accept a single penny from anything that is not a human lead in the halls of Congress, please donate to this campaign Five, ten dollars goes a long way. And in fact, we want those small dollar donations to be the reason why we win. We don't want big donors to be the ones who dictate our success on this campaign trail. So if you find me uh, on my website, there is going to be a donation button there. Please throw us a little bit of money. It does make a huge difference and it'll make sure that we, you know, have a real chance in in taking down uh, a very, very, very big figure in corporate Democrat politics. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Welcome to Activist MMT Candidate Interview Number 3, hosted by Ramona Masachi and co-hosted by me. Today we talk with Neil Walia, who is running to represent Colorado's first congressional district. In his very first quarter as a candidate, in his first time running for office, Neil raised $100,000. It's both extraordinary and not nearly enough paling in comparison to the $2 million expected to be raised each quarter by his incumbent opponent, who is, no surprise, a powerful corporate Democrat. Neil, however, raises money from only actual human beings, so beating his opponent's fundraising numbers is only possible by becoming someone he's not. Neil is a candidate who cares about all people and is standing toe-to-toe with a candidate who cares about some people more than others. Neil is dedicated to proving that it's possible to win a campaign without compromising your soul or your constituents in order to inflate your fundraising totals. Although policy is paramount, Neil also discusses some of the secondary goals of his campaign and once in office. This includes supporting other progressive candidates, educating his constituents on policy, how Congress negotiates, and how bills are actually funded. Neil also mentions how sharing part of his personality with voters and constituents provides important context when evaluating him and his policy platform. As the host of a podcast substantially about providing context through personal stories, I obviously agree this is important. Finally, Neil indirectly inspired this MMT candidate interview series. Fadl Kaboob, who I recently interviewed in episodes 91 and 92, asked me if I would consider interviewing Neil. Having already worked with Ramona to introduce candidates to MMT in late 2019 and early 2020, I asked her if she would consider hosting. She not only said yes, we decided to create an entire series of interviews as we discuss in episode 96. Since Ramona is in contact with well over 100 candidates, finding interview subjects has not been one of our problems. You can support Neil's candidacy by visiting neilwaliaforcongress.com and neilforcd1 on Facebook and Twitter. You'll also find a link to donate to Neil's campaign in the show notes. There are three goals of this MMT candidate interview series. The first is to support and give a platform to candidates who care about all people, and because of this, are ignored by the so-called news outlets that are, in reality, news of, by, and for the rich. 
The second goal is to determine what these candidates need to beat corrupt opponents supported by a corrupt party in a corrupt campaign finance system, and especially once in office, to avoid becoming corrupted themselves. And finally, the third goal is to create a community of like-minded, MMT-aware candidates who can support each other through their campaigns and especially once in office. The latter is in order to remain focused on what really matters, which is all of their constituents, in an environment where there is overwhelming pressure to focus only on the needs, favors, promises, and especially money of big donors both in and out of their district. If you're a candidate and would like to be interviewed by Ramona, please contact her directly on Twitter at Ramona Masachi or me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If there's a candidate you would like to see interviewed by Ramona, please let us know and please recommend us to them. If you like what you hear and would like to support this candidate interview series and this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash activist MMT. And now on to our conversation with candidate for Colorado's first congressional district, Neil Walia. Enjoy. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm well. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. I'm fantastic. Welcome, Neil. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you all lending me your platform to have this conversation. Of course. So, so how are things? How are things going? Going with your campaign? Is it all crazy right now? Things continue to escalate, but in a very good way. Oh. We closed our first quarter by raising over a hundred thousand uh, dollars in Whoa. less than three months, and so as you can imagine. Uh, yeah, after we closed our quarter, and I think you all understand that when you're kind of doing what I'm doing, which is taking on a, a you know a pretty large incumbent without having much of a brand, and as you all know, this is my first time running for office. People are judging you primarily by your ability to raise money, right? And so, since we've disclosed our numbers, and since people have kind of gotten the flag that okay, Neil can not only talk the talk, but he can walk the walk. Uh, a lot of doors are continuously opening and things to move in the, continue to move in the right direction, which we're really excited to see. You got 100,000 in a quarter? Is that what you just said? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, That seems that, pretty extraordinary. Yeah. It, I mean, don't get me wrong. It took a lot to get there. I think I had to trade in about five years of my life to make that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but we did it. And we did it with the support of real human beings. We haven't accepted a single penny from any corporation, any PAC. And it's been really fulfilling to see the kind of you know support we've been able to generate in such a short amount of time. Well, let me let me ask a really cynical question, if I may. Yeah, please. How much of that is for you and how much of that is against the guy you're going against? So I will tell you that 100% of that is for me at this stage in time. Wow, nice. It's been from people I have built trust and relationships with throughout the course of my life going back Remarkably, as far as high school, I had people coming out of the woodworks from like 15 years ago trying to throw down for me. And um, it's been really amazing to see just how many individuals are trying to fight the same fight that we are and put someone in Congress who is not beholden to the donor class, but who is there for the people and of the community. Wow, that's great. I'm really glad to hear for your success. All right. Well, Ramona, take it away. Welcome to the Activist MMT podcast. I am your host, Ramona Masachi, and my co-host is Jeff Epstein. Say hello, Jeff. Hello, Ramona. Hello, Neil. Thank you so much both for coming on. My pleasure. <laughs> Our guest today is Neil Walia, and he is running in Denver, Colorado, District 01. Welcome, Neil. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so great to have you here. And, you know, you are kind of the reason why we're even doing this. Mm, that's true. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I feel very honored, but I'm actually interested to hear what does that mean exactly? So Fadal Kaboom yeah. had uh, contacted Jeff and said, Jeff, you know, will you 
uh, interview Neil. You know, he's he's really great. He's a, he's a new candidate. I want people to know about him. And so Jeff had contacted me and said, listen, do, do you mind doing it with me? And I said, absolutely. And so you are kind of the, the what created our union here. Wow. Actually, actually, I... I I mean, I wanted to interview you. When you think of candidates, progressive candidates, MMT on Twitter, obviously Ramona comes, this who's who came to mind for me. And I'm like, you do it. You're the one who should do this. And so we, you know, that's that's how it started. But yes, it was from a suggestion of Fadl specifically reaching out to me unprompted and said, would you please interview Neil? That's so that's how this whole series began. I mean, that 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 warms my heart. And, you know, shout out to Fadl. He has been an amazing mentor uh, and someone who has continuously supported our candidacy uh, before I even really had the success that we've been able to generate. And, um, you know, I'm continuously grateful to have him in my corner and uh, hope to hope to serve him proud throughout the course of this campaign. That's great. So who are you running against? I am running against Congresswoman Diana DeGette. She has been in office for a quarter century now, and she is someone I would describe as the most powerful member in our federal delegation and someone I would say is, you know, a corporate Democrat uh, for a lack of, of better phrasing. What is your demographic in the area and what is the general um, income in the area? When you say the demographic, the way I interpret that question is uh, Denver is, you know, a very large city and a city that has grown exponentially over the course of the last decade. And it is a young city. Uh, New people continue to move here every single day. Denver has a number of historic communities that have built this city into the city that it is. Uh, That includes a very vibrant Chicano community in the north side of Denver. We have a very large black community, or I should say we used to have a very large black community in Five Points. But, you know, one of the challenges that Denver has seen is as it has continued to grow, a lot of these historic communities, a lot of our working class families who have turned Denver into the iconic city that it has become in recent years have sadly been pushed out of their homes. And so the demographic in terms of wealth is one that is very, very large. There are a large number of individuals who continue to move here and who have moved here that, you know, they, they make a lot of money uh, and in the process have gentrified this city, in my opinion, in unfortunately a consequential way. How long has that been going on, the gentrification? Uh, I'd say well over 15 years. I mean, I think that Denver has always been an attractive city in the region, but I think, you know, going back to when I'd say John Hickenlooper assumed mayorship and took kind of the focus on growing Denver, economically especially, you know, you've seen uh, a lot of growth in different industries, you've seen a lot of influence and a continued presence of real estate continue to expand this city into something that I would say is losing the soul, I think, of what we all have loved for a long time. So I see that there's several universities in your area. Are you planning on tapping into that demographic? Oh, absolutely. I think one thing that continues to hold true time and again is that our college communities and individuals who are in the age range of 18 to, I'd say, 24 continue to be the most vocal and the most committed to the type of progressive fight that I am trying to take on. And we know that we can't do it without the support uh, of our younger voters. And so over the course of both this quarter and next quarter, I think you'll continue to see us expand our ground game, not only into different parts of of Denver, but also into the various university campuses uh, that call Denver home. Very nice. And how are you planning on reaching these people? Yeah, I think what we have to do is take the playbook of folks like Bernie Sanders, who, you know, I think have orchestrated a revolutionary ground game 
one that is rooted in community, one that is rooted in grassroots peer-to-peer engagement, and focus on the neighborhood, focus on the precinct, focus on you know a very local model uh, of field engagement. And that means having a presence in every single neighborhood. That means finding people who belong to those communities and neighborhoods to serve as liaisons and advocates for our campaign and having them build inroads so that we can have a presence and do what we've been trying to do since the beginning of this campaign first, which is we want to build trust because we know that trust is the foundation for success of any successful grassroots campaign. And that's what we're committed to doing. You have a lot of um, issues going on in Colorado. Yeah. You have a huge um, air quality there's a lot of pollution, there's a lot of fire, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of fracking. That's right. Um, and so what are you planning to do about this? Yeah, I mean, one, thanks for that question. And I think you've kind of hit something that challenges me on a personal level every day, which is, you know, I think a lot of people have this idea that Denver and Colorado in general uh, are very environmentally progressive communities, right? And the challenge is what you've kind of articulated is, uh, even though I think we talk a big game, we have, I think, some of the most polluted zip codes in the United States of America, communities that live in close proximity to factories, to power plants, to oil and gas factories, uh, that are quite literally living in a state of poison. And that is why we are champions of the Green New Deal, which is to not only just course correct a very real global climate catastrophe, but to provide a federal guidance and direction that empowers state and local leaders to break the grip that we've had from the oil and gas industry and actually make choices that are rooted in real environmental justice and real environmental reform and not choices that you know adhere to the to the fundraising and donations made by the same industries that continue to pollute us on a regular basis. So being that you have a lot of people in your area that, you know, we're doing very well for themselves. When you tell them that you want to enact a Green New Deal, and which basically it's a lot of spending because you have to change the entire energy grid. You have to change the way the energy is is produced um, and you have to create transportation. So when you tell them that you want to make these plans, you want to do these things for your community, and they tell you, well, how are you going to pay for that? What do you say to them? Yeah, I think what I often try to start with is challenging the model of when and why we ask that question. Because I think when it comes to supporting social and progressive reform, we often find that question being used uh, kind of as a stumping mechanism to prevent those policies from being enacted. However, when it comes to, let's say, a very inflated Department of Defense budget, uh, we don't really ask that question ever. And if I'm not mistaken, Congress just greenlit you know, a DOD budget that I think has tripled the value of what the reconciliation package around the Build Back Better Act is is kind of being calculated at, right? So I first kind of lean in on that and say, well, why is it that we ask this question when it comes to this and not versus uh, something like that? And then I try to kind of talk about the fact that, look, this country has always been able to finance bold change and recover the economy uh, in times of crisis, right? And I think we've seen that when you know we said that we needed to orchestrate a 20-year war in Afghanistan and Iraq you know we didn't necessarily have that cash on hand when we financed that war but you know we we printed money we chose to kind of finance it and deal with the economic quances after the fact right we did it again in the 2008 financial crisis when you know a lot of our big banks melted the economy down and we chose to to recover them and again, it came during a time where uh, we decided to expand the deficit and debt to do that. And so we have always been a country that when in the time of need, putting money on the table to finance those changes has been something we've done time and again. 
and I think right now what has been beneficial in kind of promoting that line of thinking when it comes to things like the Green New Deal is recognizing the environment as a catastrophe and as an immediate warning and something that we have to deal with. That is front and center in this in the minds and hearts of Denverites and Coloradans, right? We walk outside and we are breathing air that hurts our lungs. Last year, I saw ash fall from the sky into my hands. And every single day, uh, the realities of pollution become clearer and clearer. And now the appetite around the Green New Deal and financing a new economy and one that doesn't hurt us physically, emotionally, and spiritually is something that a lot of people, not just in Denver, but around the country really, really want. And I think that when it comes to the question of how do we pay for it, uh, there are a lot of different ways we can go about that. Uh, But I want to make a very, very clear point, which is that we don't have to raise taxes to pay for things, right? I think we should raise raise taxes because out of principle, living in a morally just society means having people pay pay their fair share and not having billionaires pay zero while their secretaries are the ones who are financially constrained uh, by our nation's tax model. So um, as far as the federal jobs guarantee, um, how would you implement federal jobs guarantee in your community? Yeah, I mean, I think that starts with the Green New Deal, right? And recognizing that there are going to be a number of positions, whether that be rooted in administrative positions, policy positions, and a large number of other technical skill sets that will be required to put us on a course that can correct an environmental uh, crisis. And so for me, if you can couple the Green New Deal with a job guarantee and a job guarantee that says listen, let's create pools of money and actual jobs, jobs that pay you know, above $15 an hour, jobs that have secure benefits and that can actually be given to communities that have been historically disenfranchised, especially for communities, let's say, that uh, have for whatever reason been hit with, let's say, felonies of some sort that are rooted in things like marijuana possession and other small petty crimes, we can say that, look, we recognize that those types of barriers to employment are uh, not meaningful and actually hurt us more uh, than they help us. And so we can use that job guarantee to facilitate jobs both at the federal, state, and local level and create a real pathway forward from communities of all types to take a step forward. And what inspired you to run for office, Neil? Yeah. You know, I've had the privilege of working in our state government here in Colorado as well uh, as in our nation's capital. And I think throughout the course of my career, uh, I felt Denver, both by living here and from kind of being attached to this city from afar, become more and more out of reach for people and communities, like I said before, that have built Denver into the place that it is today. And right now, you know, when you look around Denver, you see an unhoused situation like nothing we've ever seen before. Um, We're seeing a real estate industry cripple real human beings in their pursuit of home ownership and stability. We are seeing, you know, the cost of healthcare increase for, for, for populations across the board, in addition to the environment quite literally melting down around us. And what's been, I think, encouraging to see is that our state and local representation have done a great job of being innovators and in driving change at the state and local level. But when you take that look up at the federal government, especially in our congressional representation here in Denver, That energy is not being matched. And I think that our federal representative can be a real voice and a real leader in making Denver a more equitable city. And so in kind of feeling all of the challenges in a very real way myself personally, uh, because look, I mean, I'm like a lot of y'all, I will probably have a lifetime of student debt. The cost of childcare is something that delays my 
uh, ability and my wife's ability to start a family in the time that we want to. And now I'm seeing things like my parents' generation being forced to go back to work because they recognize that retirement doesn't help them take care of their families. uh, And they want to make sure that their children have a home and have health insurance and have support. And it just kind of feels like everything is moving backwards. And so I chose to run because I wanted to bring bold structural reform to our city to turn Denver into a leader for those progressive ideas. Um, And I wanted to do that from the perspective of of, of being community forward, being justice driven, and being the first representative in all of Colorado who won't accept uh, a single penny from anything that is not a human being. So those are some of the reasons why I've chosen to take this step uh, and to run for office. Uh, Neil, can you just briefly describe your, uh, your roles in state government and, and national government? Yeah, I started my career uh, as an intern here in the governor's office back when uh, our current senator, uh, Senator Hickenlooper, was governor of Colorado. And I was able to take a step forward into being an executive assistant and then a program coordinator on a team that specifically focused on ending homelessness. And so that was a population I worked with uh, directly during my days with the state and one that I understand and have a tremendous amount of empathy for and really want to prioritize uh, when I am elected into office. And working there for three and a half years, or three years, I should say, gave me the ability to plant a number of roots and a number of relationships throughout Denver and Colorado uh, with people who are in the fight for justice, especially for our most vulnerable communities. And that thankfully allowed me to obtain a job in the National Governors Association in Washington, D.C., where I got to work in their government relations office for a few years uh, and literally kind of work in and out of the halls of Congress and the federal government and learn the lay of the land, observe patterns of behavior, and recognize quite directly some of the ill symptoms that constrain leaders in Washington, D.C. from making choices that benefit people rather than corporations. And so for me, uh, my entire career has been rooted in the public sector and, you know, I want to kind of take that knowledge and I want to apply that to my leadership and actually get things done in the halls of Congress when we're elected next year. Thanks. Yeah. So you already have all of this experience and all of this background and all of these connections that you can take with you and start creating a progressive coalition in Congress a stronger progressive coalition in Congress. Definitely. <laughs> um, and what do you, I mean, I, I know, I know you raised a hundred K in the first quarter, but what, how much money do you need? Do you think you need about to win this? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the answer isn't so crystallized in the sense that, What I need to do going forward is continue to progress and do better uh, than I did before. And to give you context, you know, my my opponent on average will raise close to $2 million every cycle to support her reelection, right? So when you put $100,000 in that context, you know, we're always going to be behind. And that's reality that we have to overcome. But I'm here to prove to individuals that you do not need a $2 million corporate budget to win an election. And I think what we've seen so far is our campaign take off in a very real way with a fraction of what my opponent raises. And that's because, you know, we want to spend our money effectively and smartly, especially when it comes to things like digital advertisements and getting into everyone's phones, which I see as a major pathway forward. But I think the general answer to your question is, you know, as long as I can continue to raise more than the quarter before, that will continue to give us the ability to hire staff. Uh, that'll be give us the ability to continue growing our team and investing those dollars into a very effective model of communication and engagement uh, with our neighborhoods that is both digital and physical in terms of being present in in our communities. I think uh, Jeff had a question for you. 
I think I do. Um, okay, so once you enter Congress, you're going to be under enormous pressure to to ignore your constituents and to focus on big donors, whether yeah. they're in or out of your district. So you know that requires call time uh, every day, and you know you'll get favors and promises, and basically give you more privilege and try and make you look away from your district. So if you want to be reelected, if that's one of your goals, then that also requires, and I, that also requires money. So there's a tension. So I want to ask, what will you do to keep in touch with your most disadvantaged constituents for your entire time in office? How will you balance that tension? And I want a personal answer, but this is bigger than any of us the system corrupts the best of us. Um, so yeah, we need to get money out of, out of politics and that's the long-term goal, but there's obviously a significant chunk of time between now and then. So how do you survive until then? And since this is bigger than you, what system or network or whatever that means to you, do you create in order to prevent yourself from being corrupted essentially? Yeah. Um, Thank you for that question. I mean, or I should say set of questions. Those are those are really targeted and excellent. And so let me start by kind of like breaking those down a, a little more individual, and then I will get to the course uh, of answering all of them. So why don't we focus on what you were hitting at when you asked about the balance between, you know, effective representation and how do you, you know, engage with all of your constituents in the context of the fact that there will be tremendous pressure uh, to kind of take your attention away from that. And so, um, look, I, I think you strike at a very real challenge that people in Congress face, uh, which is the tug of war between being an effective candidate versus being an effective representative, right? And, you know, I think we are currently seeing some members of Congress, particularly members of the squad, walk that line very effectively. And one of the things that I see myself having in common with those members is that we're all products of the communities that we come from. And that community continues to be the driving force behind our growth and success as leaders. And when you're someone who has already earned the trust of the communities you operate in, which is something, thankfully, we've seen communicated to us time and again throughout the course of this campaign, you know, they'll have your back and are actively providing you opportunities to engage with them. So once you build that trust, financial contributions from people and not special interest groups or the corporate donor class organically will start to hit your campaign. And this is something that we've been able to experience firsthand. So for us, generating trust is always going to be the core priority of my leadership, whether that be as a candidate on the campaign trail or as a representative in office. And for me, that's what it should always look like, right? Which is cultivating so much trust in your district that the core act of being present and building something from the ground up actually serves as a model for financing your campaign. If you can do that, the poisonous aspects of campaign finance start to cease and you no longer have to sell your soul to or you know dilute your values uh, just for the sake of making money. So that is kind of how I would answer, I think, the first part um, of your questions. And let me, let me follow up on that before you move on to something sure. else, if I yeah, can. Definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised to hear you call this the, what seemed to me that you were saying there's kind of a dichotomy of, of uh, campaigning versus representing. Yeah. And I, is it all the, see, I, like that, that kind of implies that, the corrupting influence is exclusively campaign finance. Mm -hmm. And I think there's more than that. I mean, that's yeah. obviously a big element, but I think there's more than that. Like, even if you don't want to be reelected and you, you, you still are going to get corrupted in different ways. It's not just from campaign finance, it's favors, it's, it's trips, it's, you know, it's tchotchkes. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's more than just that. So can you elaborate on, is that really that dichotomy or is maybe, is there more to it? Or maybe I'm just misunderstanding what, where you were going. Well, I guess I tie in favors and some of the more luxurious kind of contributions made to uh, candidates throughout the course of their time in office as sort of that com campaign finance problem. I think the general point I'm trying to articulate is that 
if your entire foundation as a campaign is rooted in community, and that also means only financing your operation from small dollar donations uh, and having a model that is built only on the pillars of community engagement and re-engagement and building policies that start at the ground level, especially in core partnership with individual community members, but also state and local leaders, both on the ground and in office, I think that creates the world in which you operate in and all of the relationships that kind of build your success. But, you know, I think this is kind of tied into like another part of the questions I think you were asking earlier around how do you make sure that when you're in Congress, you have people, whether that be like-minded officials or uh, other leaders in our nation's capital who, who, who are focusing on our fight for justice and who are focusing on our fight for progress. And for me, like I mentioned this before, I've, I've had the privilege of working in our nation's capital uh, and spending time uh, on Cap Hill. And look, I, I can tell you that being in Congress can oftentimes feel like a strangely isolating experience, especially when you're kind of front and center in the public eye, and to your point earlier, are being bombarded with pressures coming in from all over. Look, uh, changing a broken status quo is work that cannot be done alone. And yet, for whatever reason, we see members of Congress who are trying to compete with each other uh, rather than collaborate on their shared goals uh, and values. And uh, again, I think this is something that people who are in office, particularly members who are in the squad, have been figuring out really well how to do, which is to build a coalition and stand together publicly to achieve their shared policy goals, which are rooted in things like justice and progress and trust and community, but also who continuously work as members of their community and as an individuals within their own kind of progressive communities and caucus to be a supporting system and a soundboard for each other. Um, no one person is an island. And I think that's especially true when you're fighting to change the oppressive structures that can constrain our nation's capital. Look, we all need a support system. We all need community. And I hope to do that when I'm in Congress and not only find that for myself, but to provide that for other people, especially to those members who are in our area and our part of the country who look to Denver and Colorado as a whole for a model of progressive leadership. Okay. And I, I really like your, um, I think, I think this is what you were saying is, is basically inspire people to donate to you by just helping them as hard as you can. Yeah. So instead of doing call time, you that's, just yeah. help them. I think that's a more effective way of putting my long-winded answer. Definitely. It's just about making the priority of what you do human beings. Right. And I think you're right. Like it's not just a personal answer and it's not just something that you can say. And one thing that I try to kind of drive home for people who I meet on the campaign trail is that, look, don't just trust my words when I'm saying this to you. Trust the model of how we're running this election. Because when you do run a grassroots race, right, when you do make a point to say we will not accept anything beyond the individual contribution maximum and we will not accept money from corporate PACs or special interest groups, what you're doing is you are giving full power to the voter and you are essentially making your word and the trust that they have of you the thing that your candidacy lives and dies by. And so if the day ever becomes real where I betray my values and betray the things that I'm saying to you, I'm not going to have hundreds of corporations flood my campaign uh, with contributions to keep me afloat. I'm not going to have a national established party have my back and keep me afloat term after term, even if the people of our, our district are fed up with me. It's in that moment when democracy is going to shine the strongest and the people Uh, of our district will vote me out of office. And I think the model of which we're running will, will secure that, that accountability and transparency throughout the course of, of, of my representation in DC. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Ramona. And Neil, will you, once you are elected, will you hold uh, public online meetings explaining bills 
explaining how things are funded, helping the public understand what is actually going on behind those walls? Yes. And I love that question because I do think of education. uh, And what I mean by education, I mean like educating people about the context of how bills are crafted, what are in those legislations, and kind of what is driving action to be taken or not taken. I think representatives have to continue doing a better job um, of making people understand how Congress operates. And I do think a lot of members slide by and continue to get reelected even when they fail because they kind of take certain shortcuts and know how to maneuver out of the public eye and hide their inefficiencies. And so for me, I think that's a great point because the more we kind of share the model, the more we inform the public directly of how, let's say, a Green New Deal from the federal to the state to the local have a direct impact on your lives and why we think this is the right path forward for our district, you know, people will, I think people will be become more aware of their power and they'll become more aware of just how valuable their votes are and just how valuable uh, having effective representation is in Washington, D.C., right? Like we want to redefine the expectation around what comes from your congressional representative. And we want to empower voters to continue being the ones who are in the driver's seat. And again, not letting decisions or who gets elected be run and decided by individuals or corporations with large amounts of money. So yes, I will commit to that and will make that a continuous part uh, of my candidacy. And will you support, once you're elected, will you support other progressives that are running um, throughout the country? That is one of the underlying goals of this campaign. And it starts also at the local level. Now, of course, my goal is to win. There is no doubt about that. But what I love about a grassroots campaign and what we've built in the process is we get to share this with other people and we get to share this with individuals who are trying to fight the good fight and not just get elected for the sake of paying politician, right? And I am committed to supporting grassroots candidates who, you know, whose lens is driven through through justice uh, and bold structural reform. And I want to continue lending this power to anyone and everyone who is trying to do right by their communities. And I think that's something that indirectly is a major benefit of putting together Uh, This campaign is that uh, in our June primary, and believe me, I think we're going to win. This is something that isn't just going to be kept tight for me. Like I am going to share this model and my pathways and continue informing individuals of all places in society who want to run for office how to just do that. And I think if people did know more uh, and had more faith in the idea that you don't have to sell out in order to, to become an elected official... I think more people would take this step forward and fight this fight in an honest way. That was a great answer. Are you doing, um, are you doing like online town halls or public town halls? So I think we have to transition into that model. Um, I think, you know, we've benefited from a very committed population to vaccination in Denver in specific. Uh, our vaccination rates are, are, I think, a lot higher than our national average and even our state average. So I've had the privilege of actually being directly in in our communities, right? And that means listening tours and, you know, people's backyards, small businesses and other parts of our city. But I'm recognizing that as we transition into the winter and Uh, I've seen COVID rates increase around the country and our campaign is very sensitive to that. And um, transitioning, I think, more diligently into an online type of structure is where we're at and what we'll have to do. But in general, we're trying to be as accessible as we can. And that means a combination of both in-person types of meetings and digital going forward. And are you going to um, basically grow a team to be able to knock on doors? Yeah, I think that's the only way we win is we need to assemble an army of, in my opinion, thousands of people who are ready to do the hard work. And listen, I got to tell you, Denver and uh, specifically my district, there are, I mean, 
so many neighborhoods and it encompasses so much ground in order to make sure that we are directly touching people not once but two times but over three times to kind of build that trust that requires assembling a very sophisticated ground game hiring individuals who know how to orchestrate that type of strategy and then finding people who are ready to knock doors and not just knock doors for the sake of supporting me but like also people who are from the neighborhoods that we want to engage with because you know, that's how real trust is built. It's not just me coming in by myself and trying to tell people, hey, like you need to vote for me. It's by finding trusted leaders in those communities who are down with our campaign and using them as a stepping stone into those communities. And so, yeah, we're definitely determined to do that. Uh, Now that we have a little bit of money uh, that we can spend, we're going to start flushing that strategy out over the course of this quarter. And then I think when you see us hit Uh, our third quarter in January, you'll see that come into fruition full fold. I want to. Uh, I want to just uh, go back just very briefly to what you the two town halls, and I just want to give my little pitch of what I wish I would see, which is do your normal town halls, but also do like every two months or whatever. Have how are you going to pay for a town hall? I love that. so that you don't have to waste time during your town hall saying, you know, ju- going back about that. You can say, go to my how to pay how to pay for it town hall, which is coming up next month, which would be with an MT economist or whoever, you know, is necessary to do that. That's my wish. Oh, and I, I think that is so important because if I can be totally honest and even a little bit maybe constructively critical of, you know, let's say the, the far left and our, our progressive leaders in this fight. I think we have as a community struggled at times to to answer that very tough question. And let's oh, be you real. think? <laughs> and let's be real about one thing too, though. People use that as a stumping mechanism, right? Even if uh, on its surface it is, in my opinion, not always like an equitable question to be asking. Like they always want to get us on things like healthcare and the Green New Deal and policies that help real human beings and put people first. And I think what MMT continues to do is empower people who are in our community, meaning the MMT community and the leaders in this space, to educate individuals, especially who are progressive, to to get around those, those challenges, right? And once I think enough people understand that every aspect of our, our, our progressive agenda is possible – and that choosing to not finance policy reform is simply a choice. I think we're going to see kind of those those questions that are designed to stump disseminate, and we'll be able to effectively speak to why uh, the Green New Deal, why Medicare for all, why a jobs guarantee is an economic benefit for every person in our country. And I think once we figure that out, you know, the road for all of us going forward becomes a lot easier. And I, you kind of alluded to this when Ramona first asked you of how do you, how, you know, how do you answer that question is you undermine the question. Absolutely. You have to undermine the question because the question is wrong. Yeah. And as you suggest, it's also for those who do understand it is a, it's, it's a propaganda. It's a, it's a, yeah. a roadblock. It's an intentional roadblock. Yeah. So, um, I, I lost exactly what I, I had something more to say, but 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 yes, I, I agree. Yeah, and if you can hit the context of why that question gets asked and allow people to organically have those aha moments on their own, and I think that is something that we have to do better as a community, right? It's not tell people how it is, it's encourage people to take those steps forward on their own and get to that moment of realizing that all these you know, how do you pay for it questions and uh, the whole stereotype that all progressives want to do is spend, spend, spend. To your point, that's that's propaganda. That is that is a machine that is designing your thought process to interpret what we're trying to fight for in a negative way. And we have to be ready to overcome that. And it makes me proud to see, you know, folks in our nation's capital start to use the MMT framework to, to gain real victories in that conversation. And and I and also it's we need to simply get away for we can pay for healthcare. We can pay for the Green New Deal. We can no, 
We can do healthcare. Absolutely. We can provide healthcare. We can do a Green New Deal. We can just get away from the whole concept of money. So yes, so I think we're on the same page. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. Well, getting back to healthcare. <laughs> so, so my biggest issue with healthcare is that we need more hospitals, more clinics, more doctors, more nurses, more technicians. We need to educate and teach skills to a whole population of people to be able to serve the population at large properly. Yeah. And... And I feel like when we're talking about healthcare, there are steps that we need to take from uh, free education to infrastructure and everything that surrounds that, you know, to get there. I agree. Yeah. And and I think the the, the biggest thing is making sure that all of it, you know, hate to, to, to go back to the money, but it matters. All of it is funded properly. That means the federal government is actually funding what it costs for a patient to be in the ER or for a patient to have a surgery. I think all of that is very important and all of those pieces need to come together properly for it to to be a successful policy. Well, I couldn't agree more and I think – Right now, there is a real opportunity for that because I think we are seeing the brutal consequences of a privatized healthcare system more than we've ever seen it before, I think, in our lives. At least I am, right? Um, You know, I have talked with people who are unhoused who have been, you know, bankrupted by a health crisis, right? Like that's something that is a real illness of our current model of healthcare. You know, I talked to uh, professionals who are in healthcare who want to provide mental health services and real steps forward for some of our most vulnerable populations, especially the unhoused, tell me that it costs them more money to finance individuals who are on Medicaid than it does uh, to not finance them at all, right? And these are shortcomings that are rooted in a privatized, insurance driven type of healthcare system that doesn't really see doctors or doesn't really see nurses or hospital systems seek to provide holistic healthcare to individuals who need it, right? When you go into the hospital these days, people aren't trying to actually give you a comprehensive set of solutions to fix your your sickness, right? They're trying to give you the quickest solution that is the least expensive and just send you back into the world without really having to deal with that burden. And I think that people recognize that now more than ever. And people recognize that our privatized model of healthcare is broken. And I think people really do believe, at least they do in my district, that healthcare is a human right. And we have to start there and build from the bottom up. And I think the federal government can play a very effective role And to your point, providing education and pathways and funding that allow holistic healthcare to be materialized without harming the rest of us financially. And so I think there's a real opportunity here and we need to keep hitting the gas pedal on uh, on the floor uh, so that we can get there. Amen to that. (laughs) So um, how did you meet Andres Bernal. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Andres um, is a friend of a friend. And like, look, uh, when I started on my journey, I'll tell you this, I was one person. And when I started exploring, I think the one privilege that I've had is that when I got to explore, it meant that I got to chat with people because of my career, uh, people who have run campaigns, people who are in office, people who are policy leaders, things like that. And when you're in a grassroots campaign, really a lot of this is connecting the dots uh, and following kind of like the puzzle pieces, right? Like one conversation leads to more conversations, one relationship will lead to another. And a friend of mine who I used to work with back in the governor's office had since moved out to New York City, uh, and he kind of falls into that MMT, Justice Dems kind of community. And then, you know, as my as my quiet underground campaign started to kind of grow more and more, Andres was someone who I happened to just get connected to with the right people. And, you know, uh, Andres and I, I think what has made our relationship 
effective is not only just the fact that we're aligned on our policy views and what we think of as being really needed by leadership uh, in this country, but I think we just get along really well on like a personal level. And yeah, he's a great guy. I am so proud of the fact that he is on our team um, and he continues to kind of take us forward in the right way day by day. And so that's how I know Andres. Ah, that's great. Andres yeah. is the best of the best. He's a, he is certainly one of the best and brightest. I would agree with that. So I found your um, YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It is super cute. Are you going to do more? Yeah. Look, I got to tell you, uh, I love YouTube, right? And for me, I love video. And I think it's such an effective mechanism for education. Like, I have learned about so I mean, like, look, my my education through MMT is YouTube inspired, right? Like that has been a vehicle for my own growth. And I think it's such an undertapped resource for people who are in this campaign game because, you know, I recognize now people don't just want another cookie cutter politician, right? They want to know who their candidates are. They want to know their personality. They want to know what builds them and kind of what their lifestyles are and actually know them in a way that isn't rooted to whatever you see on national news every day. And I think YouTube is a great opportunity for us to not just showcase our policy ideas, but like to have fun and showcase our personality and just kind of different parts of identity that I don't really see other politicians take advantage of. I think I think a lot of candidates, I should say some candidates have done a good job of utilizing that as a resource, but uh, I think the vast majority are not taking advantage of it, and we're trying to kind of capitalize on that. Um, and where can people find you? Yeah, great, great question. Thank you for asking me. First and <laughs> foremost, I would love for people to check out my website. That's going to be neilwaliaforcongress.com. That's N-E-A-L. W-A-L-I-A for congress.com. If you're listening to this podcast, give me a follow on Twitter. You can find me at Neil for CD1. That's also my Facebook handle. If you want to find me on Instagram, you can find me at Neil underscore K underscore Walia. And lastly, listen to Ramona. Check out my YouTube channel. It's awesome. It's Neil Walia for Congress. And how can people support you? What do you need? How can they help you? Yeah, listen, um, first and foremost, if you are in the first congressional district and you're listening to this, the way that this campaign will live or die is by community engagement. And so if you're hearing this and if you're interested in hosting us for either a one-on-one conversation, a group listening tour or something different, we want to be in your community. Uh, Please reach me at my email address. That's going to be neil at neilwaliaforcongress.com. And we will certainly engage with you. If you want to support us virtually, listen, give me a follow on all of my handles and stay tuned. And finally, as I said before, I'm committed to building trust before I am to asking for anyone's money. And so if you follow this campaign, if you like what we're trying to do, if we have cultivated your trust and you want to see a people-powered candidate who does not accept a single penny from anything that is not a human lead in the halls of Congress, please donate to this campaign. Five, ten dollars goes a long way. And in fact, we want those small dollar donations to be the reason why we win. We don't want big donors to be the ones who dictate our success on this campaign trail. So if you find me uh, on my website, there is going to be a donation button there. Please throw us a little bit of money. It does make a huge difference and it'll make sure that we you know, have a real chance in, in taking down uh, a very, very, very big figure in corporate Democrat politics. Woohoo, fantastic. <laughs> that you. was great. I'm, I'm all fired up. <laughs> I hope so. I'm, I'm trying to get people fired up. So I appreciate that validation. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us, Neil. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And I wish you the best success. Yeah, thank you again for lending me your platform. It's conversations like these that will help us actually win come our primary next June. So uh, thanks for, for the opportunity and for the work that you all continue to do. And thank you, Jeff. And I guess that's a wrap.
Neil, thank you so much for doing this. And Ramona, thank you so much for doing this as well. I think these are turning out to be really good. Sweet. Thanks, y'all. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app. Welcome to Activist MMT Candidate Interview Number 3, hosted by Ramona Masachi and co-hosted by me. Today we talk with Neil Walia, who is running to represent Colorado's first congressional district. In his very first quarter as a candidate, in his first time running for office, Neil raised $100,000. It's both extraordinary and not nearly enough paling in comparison to the $2 million expected to be raised each quarter by his incumbent opponent, who is, no surprise, a powerful corporate Democrat. Neil, however, raises money from only actual human beings, so beating his opponent's fundraising numbers is only possible by becoming someone he's not. Neil is a candidate who cares about all people and is standing toe-to-toe with a candidate who cares about some people more than others. Neil is dedicated to proving that it's possible to win a campaign without compromising your soul or your constituents in order to inflate your fundraising totals. Although policy is paramount, Neil also discusses some of the secondary goals of his campaign and once in office. This includes supporting other progressive candidates, educating his constituents on policy, how Congress negotiates, and how bills are actually funded. Neil also mentions how sharing part of his personality with voters and constituents provides important context when evaluating him and his policy platform. As the host of a podcast substantially about providing context through personal stories, I obviously agree this is important. Finally, Neil indirectly inspired this MMT candidate interview series. Fadal Kaboob, who I recently interviewed in episodes 91 and 92, asked me if I would consider interviewing Neil. 
having already worked with Ramona to introduce candidates to MMT in late 2019 and early 2020. I asked her if she would consider hosting. She not only said yes, we decided to create an entire series of interviews as we discuss in episode 96. Since Ramona is in contact with well over 100 candidates, finding interview subjects has not been one of our problems. You can support Neil's candidacy by visiting neilwaliaforcongress.com and Neil for CD1 on Facebook and Twitter. You'll also find the link to donate to Neil's campaign in the show notes. There are three goals of this MMT candidate interview series. The first is to support and give a platform to candidates who care about all people and because of this are ignored by the so-called news outlets that are in reality news of, by, and for the rich. The second goal is to determine what these candidates need to beat corrupt opponents supported by a corrupt party in a corrupt campaign finance system, and especially once in office, to avoid becoming corrupted themselves. And finally, the third goal is to create a community of like-minded, MMT-aware candidates who can support each other through their campaigns and especially once in office. The latter is in order to remain focused on what really matters, which is all of their constituents, in an environment where there is overwhelming pressure to focus only on the needs, favors, promises, and especially money of big donors, both in and out of their district. If you're a candidate and would like to be interviewed by Ramona, please contact her directly on Twitter at Ramona Masachi or me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If there's a candidate you would like to see interviewed by Ramona, please let us know and please recommend us to them. If you like what you hear and would like to support this candidate interview series and this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash activistmmt. And now, on to our conversation with candidate for Colorado's 1st Congressional District, Neil Walia. Enjoy.